Dissident Daughters podcast. I'm your host, Ada, and I'm here deconstructing my Mormon faith and making space for other women like me to do the same. If you don't know what a dissident daughter is, well, it's a woman who actively challenges an established political or religious system, doctrine, belief, policy, or institution. And that's why I'm here, to challenge the Mormon faith as an institution, its doctrine and policies, If you want to come along on this journey with me, stick around and we'll do some talking, laughing, maybe crying, (laughs) venting, deconstructing. We'll learn some new things, hopefully, and most importantly, be supported through this difficult journey. I'm glad you're here. Hello, welcome to the Dissident Daughters podcast. This is Ada. And I've got my good friend Nancy here with me. <laughs> hey, <Nancy's> her code name. <laughs> um, we are here today, and we are going to talk about our favorite dissident daughters, right? Yes. We have um, Nancy is a researcher at heart. She's a historian researcher. I'm a nerd. She's a nerd. <laughs> it's that's, okay. You're a better title. Nerd. <laughs> and so I thought it would be really fun to kind of research some of these. Women in Mormon history that we've heard about, that we know some stories about, and kind of highlight our favorite dissidents, because that's what this podcast is about, right? That's right. So I will go ahead and start, and then we'll just kind of take turns going through yours. (laughs) We'll see. Who knows? Some of them are better than others, but okay. So I'm going to start with Mary Fielding Smith, okay? And she was a little bit of a hard one for me because... At face value, I wouldn't necessarily have called her a dissident, but after researching more, I felt like she was as dissident as she could be at the time, if that makes sense. That makes total sense. While still having faith in the church, which I wish she would have come away from, but but this, this was her situation. So she was born in 1801. She was raised in rural England. Um, she was raised Methodist. And super religious. Her family was super religious. In 1834, they immigrated to Toronto, Canada. And it was there that John Taylor and Parley Pratt came and tried to teach them the gospel. One of the, like, kind of anecdotal stories is that Mary Fielding and her sister Martha. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to forget because I didn't write it down. Shoot. I think it's Martha. That they ran away from the missionaries and they hid because they didn't want to hear about these this other people's church, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> Running away right yeah. from the home teacher. Exactly. Exactly. Right. <laughs> so they were kids, like teenage maybe girls, at the time that the missionaries came and taught them. So, anyways, their whole family joined the church. They moved to Kirtland in 1837. Um, her older brother left on a mission, and her sister immediately got married and went back to Canada. So now. She was all alone. Her, she became a governess and was was doing that for somebody there in Kirtland. I'm not sure who. Then in October 1837, Hiram Smith, who was married to Jerusha Smith, Jerusha gave birth to their fifth child and she died like almost immediately after childbirth, fifth child. So here Hiram is left with five children to raise. And Joseph almost immediately told Hiram to marry Mary. (laughs) He's like, you need somebody to help you raise these kids. I think you should marry Mary. She's single. So then the next March, 1838. So this was, they got married in December of 1837, right? March, just a few months later, they were, they had to leave to go to Missouri. Hiram and Joseph were arrested and jailed at that time for six months And Mary was pregnant when they were jailed. This was in Liberty Jail, when they went to Liberty Jail. So she gave birth to Joseph F. Smith, who was the future president Mm -hmm. of the church, right? Mm -hmm. She, But she was really sick after she had this baby. She has no husband there. She has six freaking kids, Mm -hmm. right? Five that are not her own birth children, right? Mm -hmm. And I just, yeah, I can't imagine. So she's there. Her husband's gone. Then they left Missouri and went to Illinois by 1839. So if you'll notice, like all of these dates are very close together. Yeah. These are all like boom, it's boom, boom, year after year person. after year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot to happen to a person. Exactly. Mary had another child um, in June of 1844, which there was a little bit of a gap there, five years or so. But it was mostly because Hiram was gone all the time. <laughs> 
So. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That's why. Yep. Yep. <laughs> okay. Um. Sorry. So let's see. So shortly after she had her second child in June of 1844, that's when Hiram and Joseph were killed. Okay. So she is now has seven children, all very young, has barely, you know, ever had a home, has had to move from town to town to town to town. And now her husband is dead. So they tell a story about like the a day or two after they had passed when they finally were able to bring the bodies and they would bring them to the homes. And um, they talk about when she saw his body, she just wailed and just cried out his name. And her children, her oldest child, Martha, which was named after her sister, um, reported that she almost never smiled again. Isn't that so sad? Yeah. So Mary and her children were some of the last saints to leave Nauvoo. In 1848, it wasn't until 1848 that Mary was assigned to go with Captain Lot. Okay. So they they would have different captains over groups that, right. would, that would go. And so Captain Lot was assigned to take her, but he told her that she couldn't come with them because she would slow them down. He's like, you're a widow with all these kids. You're just going to be trouble for me. So I don't want you to come. So, and a lot of people have heard this story about her, but she basically said to him, you know, I'm not going to be trouble. You aren't going to need to do anything for me. I'm going to do it all by myself and I'm going to beat you to Zion. And so she just took that as a huge challenge because he said, oh, now you're going to slow us down. Another story that most of us have heard about her is that one of her oxen like suddenly collapsed and, and she blessed and it, she blessed it yeah. and it got up and, and went away. But there's conflicting stories about this because in, in the story that I heard, it was that she blessed it. But then in another story I read, it was her son, Joseph F., who blessed the oh, oxen. Oh, okay. And that's an interesting distinction, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Because he had the power of the priesthood. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, anyways, um, let's see. One of the days, like, where they had stayed over someplace, the captain essentially, like, ditched her. And when she got up, they were already gone. And so she raced. She got all packed up. And they, basically, it was a race to Utah. And she was such a badass and wanted to prove to every man there that the widow didn't slow them down. She was just so determined. So she, and she did, she beat them to Utah. She got there before, before them. Um, some of the stories are a little bit, you know, like just history's complicated. I'm sure there's more to that story than we know, but that's what I could find out. So after they settled in Utah, she was offered a lot near Temple Square, but she said, I, I want my independence. I'm going to go find my own space. And so she basically went south until she got to Mill Creek and found a little place right by the river. And she loved it and fell in love with it. And she made that her home. Smart woman. Yep. She asked for (laughs) nothing. She asked for no help. She was like, I am determined. I am going to do this. But the sad thing about this is that, I mean, I feel like her determination and her working so hard on her own with no help, you know, caused her to have some poor health. In 1852, which was only, what, that's only like four years after getting to Utah, three or four years, she she died of pneumonia. So she was only 51 years old. But, okay, this is another really interesting. That used to be old, but it is Yeah, old that's anymore. true. That's not old anymore. That's so young. I it guess then maybe that would have been considered old. <laughs> so this is really interesting. I watched this. Um, the church puts out like these, I think they're called History of the Saints, and they're just kind of like little short videos that highlight different members of the church. And in this video, you know, they talk about this story, and they talk about how, you know, she had pneumonia, and they say that, before she died, she went to Heber C. Kimball's house and asked him for a blessing. And he gave her a blessing, and then she died shortly later. Well, once I dug a little bit further, what I realized was that Heber C. Kimball was her husband. Mm-hmm. And they never mentioned that. They mm-hmm. acted like he was her home teacher. Yeah. But he had taken her as one of his wives. I don't know what number, but I mean, pick a number. It was somewhere in the <laughs> 60 wives that he had. Um, but it was definitely like a caretaker role. It was not a an intimate husband-wife uh, relationship. But she didn't bear any of his children or any of that. But, um, yeah, they just, it's just in these little small ways, they don't tell the whole story. And 
that's an important part of the story, I think. So when she was traveling, so this was, she married Heber C. back in Nauvoo. So when she was traveling to Utah, she didn't have to travel to Utah as a single widow. Mm-hmm. He was supposed to be her caretaker. Did mm-hmm. he go with her? No, mm-hmm. he did not. I'm not sure if he left before her or after her, but he was not with her. So he was not helping her. How was he a caretaker? So how can they claim the polygamy was to take care of the women? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So she did everything herself. Yeah. So I think she was a badass, even though she 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 stayed faithful to the church. But I think what I loved about her story was that she didn't take the handouts. She didn't she didn't think of herself as weak or needing a man. She or just a victim. Yeah, she, she did not did act not like take a victim. On the victim mentality. She, yeah. Yep. She, yep. She pulled herself up by the bootstraps and just did what she had to do. And she took care of all of those kids that were not hers. And, you know, until she died, of course. And then I don't know what happened to him. Who knows if he Bercy Kimball took care of him? Because I mean he clearly didn't take care of anything else. He didn't. Gosh. Yeah, he is well known as being like the worst husband in the Mormon history. Dad. Yeah, yeah, the neglectful dad. Yeah. I mean, I I don't I didn't know that anybody could compete with Brigham Young for being the worst, but I'm pretty sure Heber C. Kimball was the worst. <laughs> yeah, I agree. So. so okay, now you go on your first well, I, lady. I'm going to go a modern times one first. Mm. So will that throw everybody off? No, one? not okay. at all. Okay, we're not going in so order. I I am I chose Margaret Toscana. Yes. And Toscano. I don't want to murder that name. No. Anyway. And she was kind of the September 6th and three quarters. Ah. She could have easily have been part of the September. There could have been September 7th. Yeah. But as events turn out, she didn't. So okay. most of this is taken from a PBS interview on American Experience. Okay. And it was in January of 2006, if you want to look it up. So she was born in Arizona. And it says that her family was one of... From Mormon pioneers, so they were an old family, but they kind of had um, oh, more lenient views on the church as she was growing up. Mm. She says they had really good discussions in their home and, okay. and that kind of stuff. So you were you were okay to have questions about the gospel and that kind of thing. Uh, it says the quote is she very believing but open loving was the sort of background that I came from. I went as a freshman to BYU. And more or less stayed around in Utah is what she she did until she she married Paul Toscana Toscano. I'm gonna <laughs> murder that the whole time. So anyway, um, and then she she's very very smart, extremely smart, very well spoken, and she started doing research and come up with some research that Joseph Smith actually did ordain women. Ooh. And that they he he was he had given women the priesthood and it was through the temple endowment. And so, wait, so was she the first one to like to like probably, openly probably. Like go back and say okay? He I don't know. I don't have to do some research, but she yeah. yeah she she it says right here it says I looked at the different statements of Joseph Smith. I discovered that he believed and he said this very clearly that he gave women the priesthood through the Mormon temple ceremony. I uncovered a lot of historical statements about this, both from him and his close followers who had taught this who had taught this also. I wrote a lot about this issue and also using other Mormon the- theological ideas, transcribed and sent it to church headquarters. <laughs> <laughs> I so, love her. She's so I love brave. Her. I just yeah. love that about her. Yeah. And um, and it says where they had been, then then it was given to the, her state president. Oh, of course of it course. was. Yeah. Of course so, it was. Because they wouldn't want to handle it. Right. So anyway, so because Can, do you of know this, what year that was that that would have happened um, or just a range? So she was threatened with excommunication in 1993. So it would have been okay. around there. Around that. Yeah. Okay. And so because of that, she was actually threatened with it in um, around 1993. She received a letter from her straight stake president that told her that she was not allowed to. And this is quote, speak, discuss publish, write about anything to do with church history or church doctrine, or they would hold a court, a, a church court on me. Oh and my the, goodness. Yes, I know, right? <laughs> okay. It says the things that they had asked me not to speak about were women in the priesthood mm-hmm. and the Mormon idea or the Mormon concept of heavenly mother. And yep. then there are other, actually, other things that she yeah. was told not to speak on. Okay. So, okay, so this woman is... 
very sharp. She's a college professor. Yeah. And they're telling her not to write or speak or really? That yeah. it just is so. And so specifically about yes. these are the topics you're not allowed yes. to discuss. It's like, ooh, that just rubs me the oh, wrong way. Definitely. Anyway. And, and, and I realized when I read her whole story. She's a very refined woman, mm. and, and I'm not. Because <laughs> she didn't just say, fuck you. Exactly. <laughs> yep. So, anyway, she, I just, I did realize that. So, <laughs> anyway, um, it said after, so, so things progressed, and the September 6th were excommunicated. Let's see. That would have been 93. Okay. Right? Yeah. yeah. So so things progressed, and her husband was excommunicated as one of them. It was not because of what she had written. Okay. He supported her, but he was not excommunicated. He did his own thing he that did caused his, own his thing that caused his excommunication. Now, was he, so he was a professor at BYU as well? Yes. Okay, because that's what yeah. all the September 6th were, right? Um, they were all professors at BYU, I thought. Were they all? Pro- I'm not sure if they, they were, were all BYU professors. Oh, okay. They were all intellectuals, for sure. Okay. We'll have to look that up. Yeah. Because I can't. That was I my thinking, for sure but they I were totally all at BYU. Okay. So anyway, he was excommunicated as one of the September 6th, and they just kind of left her alone. Mm. But she continued to write. It's almost like it's like, this is what happens when you speak out. Mm-hmm. So it's like almost like, I don't know, threatening to I, her. I'm but... thinking they thought they cut the head off the snake. Yeah. Do you know yes. what I mean? But what they didn't realize is they were dealing with a... What is, was that two-headed a snake? A two-headed snake? <laughs> <laughs> or the three-headed one? Yeah. yeah. So, Interesting. anyway, a basilisk, maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's know. right. I don't know. So, <laughs> any, that one did just have one head. Anyway, yeah. let's Oh, get, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, so she, but she continued to write and lecture. So, then in the year 2000, she was actually threatened with the excommunication again. And they they did bring it, it to a court. And she it says, oh, it, it drives me crazy. It says, they brought the charges against me, this apostasy, saying that I had been in opposition to the church and then proceeded to give their case. So this is, they they called her in, mm-hmm. sit her down in, in their room with all, it was, I think it was held in a gym, if I remember right. Oh yeah, I'm trying to go for, by what I heard, not mm-hmm. what, anyway, in a gym. And she is like with 18 men, I think, and yeah. <laughs> sitting there. You know how uncomfortable oh, yeah. that would be. You're the only woman mm-hmm. and yeah. all these men in authority mm-hmm. over you. Yes. yes. And you're sitting there and it says, and um, this was the reason why it felt much, very much like a kangaroo court to me, was that I really was never given a chance to defend myself. Oof. So at one point, she stands up. And, and tries to defend herself and her research. And she gives mm-hmm. the actual documentation of where Joseph Smith had said these things. And and, and she was, <clears throat> the stake president stands up. and Oh, she gave an, an example of how the of blacks in the priesthood, ah. in, in the middle of her sentence, the stake president interrupted her and said, we will not allow you to lecture us. We will not allow you to use this kind of reasoning again. You're only allowed to speak as we give you permission. And of course, I she says, and of course, I just stopped mid-sentence. I couldn't go on. That right there tells me wow. she's refined because I am not. Yeah. I would have given the middle finger, <laughs> said, F you, buddy, and walked out. I seriously yeah. would have. I know I would have because I've done that to employers before. <laughs> Anyway, so that just tells me that she is a very refined, yeah. educated woman. And yeah. Anyway, she says, I couldn't go on, but you can imagine that this was, I mean, you don't really feel like you have much of a defense. Yeah. So so then, okay, this court goes on. They dismiss her, and they she, she steps out of the room for like 20 minutes. And, and then they have her come back in. She says, it occurred to me as I'm sitting there that if this had been the Middle Ages, if these men had not only this ecclesiastical power, but if they had had the power of the state where they could give a physical punishment to me, I realized in this moment that they would have burned me at the stake Mm. and they would have done it smiling. 
thinking that they were saving my soul. This is why at the end, they can shake my hand and say, oh, you are such a lovely person. So after, okay, so after she comes back in and they they tell her, they start this of, of, of telling her how, how they how impressed they are with her oh how mm-hmm. they find her so um you know educated and well spoken and that they were really impressed with her and then they tell her and we have ex- excommunicated you and then they wow. all stand up and shake her hands this is such a barbaric it is barbaric like um um passive aggressive yes. kind of yes. because they act really kind yes. and smile uh-huh and so she was excommunicated it says so she continues to speak out even today mm-hmm. and it says i sometimes feel sometimes like to tell people that mormonism is an ethnicity as well as a religion that's why i can say i'm mormon but i'm not lds you're oh. part of a culture and it's very deep so she has found a way you know to say well, they did this to me. Yeah. And this is and and I can I can kind of relate to that. Yeah. But I don't think I would have taken it as yeah. well as her. I know I wouldn't have. Yeah. Sounds too hot headed. Yeah, you know? I wouldn't have been so nice about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. anyway. Interesting. She's she's amazing they're like, to me. They're like, we really love you. We think you're great. Mm-hmm. Here, we're shaking your hand and we're kicking you out. Yes. Yes. Exactly. It's so wow. so bizarre. It's just yeah. oh. because she had strong feelings about Women in the priesthood mm-hmm. and heavenly mother. Heavenly mother is one of the things and, that she tried to. And um, blacks in the priesthood or the racism. Well, in the she church, used right? that or, to justify just to to bring out. You know, they changed their mind about the blacks. Yeah. Why couldn't they? I mean, because yeah. there was proof that that Joseph Smith embraced that at one time. So and was so, she? Was she like the original Kate Kelly? Kind of. Was she I kind of she fighting a, for women uh-huh, to have? I think she was a bit okay. of like a precursor to Kate Kelly. Yeah. And, interesting. And, okay. and she's an amazing lady. I encourage anybody, anybody everybody yeah. to to listen to the interview because yeah. and it was on American Experience January 20 to uh, 20 2006. Oh my god. 2006. Gosh. Okay. 2006. How's that? <laughs> I know. It gets so confusing. Now. Anyway, so yeah. That is so interesting. interesting. Because you will see the refinement, you know, yeah. when you listen to her speak. And, yeah. yeah. See, and um, I always, I didn't realize that um, the priesthood thing was part of her. I always think of her in the category of fighting for Heavenly Mother specifically. Mm-hmm. And I know the September 6th, oh. that that was a big part of the September 6th was all the talk about Heavenly Mother. So I love that. Well, That's and she was, she was for women's rights. And yes, in general. Of, of women's rights. Yeah, because those things are tied to each other. The Heavenly Mother Absolutely. concept and the yeah. women in the priesthood. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. Anyway, she just okay. really impressed me. And I, she, she makes the list. So. Love it. Okay. So. She's an awesome okay. dissident daughter. Yep. All right. Our next one is Sarah Pratt. Okay. She was born Sarah Marinda Bates in 1817 in New York. At the age of 19, she met the missionaries and was baptized a member. And one of the missionaries was Orson Pratt. (laughs) So they fell in love and married as soon as his mission was over. So she was one of those girls. (laughs) Um, Three days. Okay. They had a three-day honeymoon after their wedding. And then Orson was sent on another freaking mission. Oh, that doesn't surprise me. Right, right. So in about a four-year period, they moved from Kirtland to Far West and then to Nauvoo. Um, She gave birth to a couple kids. Her second child was um, a daughter named Lydia, and she gave birth to her in Missouri, but was quickly made to leave Missouri and move to Nauvoo. And when they got to Nauvoo, Lydia died of an infection. So she was about nine months old at the time. So her second baby had died. Yep. Of an infection at nine months old. And 11 days later, Orson got called on another freaking mission. 11 days after the, her baby had died. Who does that? Right? Yeah. Oh, to, to Europe. That right there tells me they took no consideration for the women's days. No. Nope. It's like, nope. she's probably in the worst turmoil. Right. But what do we care? Yeah. What do we care? Mm-hmm. We're going to go spread the gospel. Mm-hmm. We we need more recruits. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So they sent him to Europe. We need more women to marry. <laughs> Yeah, bring some more women over. We're running out. <laughs> and don't oh take all God. the pretty ones on the ship. Right. Anyway, I'm sorry. Oh, Go no, ahead. it's totally valid. That is absolutely true. 
So um, shortly after, she began sewing to try to support her family. So she uh, began sewing for the Smith family specifically, but also others. But then came the polygamy scandal, is what it's called, um, in 1842. So there's a lot that goes into this uh, polygamy scandal, as we're calling it. And, And so hopefully I can keep track of all the details and make it make sense to you. But essentially, John C. Bennett accused or or yeah basically accused joseph smith of practicing Mm -hmm. polygamy and joseph smith said oh no you you know then he accused him basically accused him back Mm -hmm. he um accused john c bennett of seducing several women including sarah pratt and so sarah pratt was on this list of women that supposedly john c bennett um and and joseph smith like both of them were claiming the other person had done it right (laughs) Wait till we get to Nancy. Right? Oh, yeah. Nancy, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so at that time, John C. Bennett was excommunicated. But all along, he claimed that Joseph Smith was the one that was propositioning, you know, Sarah to marry him while her husband was away in Europe still, right? This is still going on. So Joseph Smith, to counteract those allegations, he compiled a pamphlet of affidavits, certificates, and letters, which quote unquote proved his innocence and Bennett's guilt concerning sexual misconduct. But what we'll find later is that a lot of that was lies because this included affidavits produced by a sheriff and also Sarah's landlords. Their last name is Goddard, Stephen and Zariah Goddard. Mm -hmm. They were her landlords. Um, And they will come into the story a little bit later. So Sarah, at this time, stayed totally silent about the issue. She did not say a word. And so did Orson. Orson stayed silent on the issue. And so their silence was seen as traitorous. And they excommunicated Orson when he got back from his mission. Because he did not stick up for Joseph and say Joseph didn't do these things. So, and he was one of the apostles, right? Mm-hmm. He he was one of the top apostles in the church. Excommunicated in August 1842 because he did not speak out and support Joseph Smith. According to an article by Van Wagner, I don't know what that what that is, but... Sarah M. Pratt, it's titled Sarah M. Pratt, The Shaping of an Apostate. <laughs> um, at this time, though, initially, Sarah was not excommunicated. But this is so weird and convoluted because what they ended up doing is Orson wanted to be back in the church. And so they rebaptized both Orson and Sarah, which I'm not sure why Sarah needed to be rebaptized because she wasn't excommunicated. But here's the crazy part as soon as she was rebaptized, the apostles immediately excommunicated her for adultery with John C. Bennett because they claimed that she committed adultery back before. It doesn't make any sense. Uh. I know. It doesn't make any logical sense. But so in February of 1843, Joseph Smith allowed both Orson and Sarah to be rebaptized again. And Orson was restored to his former position as an apostle. So after the death of Joseph Smith in 1844, Sarah, sorry, Sarah accompanied Orson Pratt to Utah. And it would only be later that she would openly take a stand on this matter that happened back in Nauvoo between John C. Bennett and Joseph Smith, right? Up until that time, she was totally silent. But she had been seduced and she she confirmed it and confirmed by whom, okay? So fast forward several years. In 1886, she was finally willing to go on record um, regarding these allegations. This author, Wilhelm Ritter von Weimetal, I don't know, published the anti-Mormon volume called Mormon Portraits. And in her 1886 interview with Sarah Pratt, Sarah Pratt alleged that Joseph Smith engaged Bennett, a medical doctor, to perform abortions on Smith's plural wives who were otherwise unmarried. Bennett's biographer, Andrew Smith, agrees that it was true and that Bennett performed abortions. At the time of the 1842 controversy, the the Goddards, remember, they were the landlords of Sarah Pratt. Zariah Goddard had claimed that Bennett told Sarah Pratt that he could cause abortion with perfect safety. This is a quote. He could cause abortion with perfect safety to the mother at any stage of pregnancy and that he had frequently destroyed and removed infants before their time to prevent exposure of the parties and that he had instruments for that purpose. Despite these allegations of abortions originating with Dr. Bennett and Sarah Pratt, 
Contemporary testimony of seduced women in 1842 assert that they were offered medicine to prevent pregnancy, not abortions to destroy evidence of pregnancy. But Sarah recounted an incident, and this is a quote. Bennett was en route to do a little job for Joseph because one of his women was in trouble. So in saying this, she says, he took out a pretty long instrument of a kind I had never seen before. It seemed to be of steel and was crooked at one end. I heard afterwards that the operation had been performed, that the woman was very sick, and that Joseph was very much afraid that she might die, but she recovered. Oh, this is something I'd like to do more research on. Yes, yes. Pratt also told Y. Metal, who was the journalist doing this article, how she had refuted Smith's son. So after the fact, after Joseph Smith Jr. had died and everything, Joseph Smith III really believed that his dad never practiced polygamy, right? right? And right. so he he came at her because she was coming out about this. And let's see. I saw that he was not inclined to believe. This is her quote. I saw that he was not inclined to believe the truth about his father. So I said to him, you pretend to have revelations from the Lord. Why don't you ask the Lord to tell you what kind of a man your father really was? And he answered, if my father had so many connections with women, where is the progeny? And I said to him, your father had mostly intercourse with married women. And as to the single ones, Dr. Bennett was always on hand when anything happened. So, wow. Yeah. So at this time, she tells this story about Joseph Smith saying that to her. And then Joseph Smith, the third, publishes a totally different story about his conversation with Sarah Pratt. And that's really interesting, too. I'll send you this information. So by 1886, Mrs. Goddard was dead and couldn't refute anything that Pratt might say about her former landlords. Joseph and Hiram were also dead and unable to refute Pratt. But at this time, so, you know, we're going, Pratt is the only one saying this, but she told Y Metal that when those testimonials were published from Joseph Smith, where he got all these affidavits, sworn affidavits that uh-huh. he had not done what he said, he, what they said he did. She went straight to the Goddard's home and she said that when she did, state, Stephen, the husband, ran out the back door. <laughs> but she confronted Zariah, who sobbed and cried. And she said, it's not my fault. Hiram Smith came to our house with the affidavits all written out and forced us to sign them. Mm. Joseph and the church must be saved, he said. That was his quote. We saw that resistance was useless and they would have ruined us. So we signed the papers. She told that to Sarah Pratt at the time. Her accounts portray her as being a virtuous innocent, if if knowledgeable, about Bennett's alleged abortions on Smith's behalf. The elderly Pratt would claim, so this is much later when she was older, I know that the principal statements in John C. Bennett's book on Mormonism are true. In 1868, so now we're kind of bouncing around timelines, but earlier, Orson had started practicing polygamy, and Sarah was not okay with it. She was not happy about it. But it wasn't until he married his 10th wife, who was a woman brought over from England, Mm -hmm. a 16 freaking year old, and Orson was 57. Oh, that is so gross. Yes. So gross. Sarah was pissed. And she was furious that he would marry a woman that was younger than his own daughter. First of all. Yeah. Yeah, um, that might be a little bit of a gripe. Yeah. Which yeah. which our current prophet is married to someone younger than his own daughter, too. Let's just make that note. Okay. <laughs> You're right. Okay. <laughs> Sarah Pratt functionally at that time ended her marriage to Mort- Orson Pratt. Now, this was not done legally. She didn't end. But functionally, mm-hmm. she said, I am no longer your wife. I want nothing to do with you. So she said he had an obsession with marrying younger women. She condemned polygamy until her death. She said, this is her quote, polygamy completely demoralizes good men and makes bad men correspondingly worse. As for the women. Well, that's a good quote. Yeah, Yeah. right. And she says, as for the women, well, God help them. First wives, it renders desperate or else heartbroken, mean-spirited creatures. Sarah was then excommunicated from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on October 4th, 1874. Because she would not be quiet about all of this stuff. She described herself. She said, I am the wife of Orson Pratt. I was formerly a member of the Mormon church. I have not been a believer in the Mormon doctrines for 30 years and am now considered an apostate. <laughs> Good for her. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So her, there's one quote about him marrying this young girl. And he says, 
Here's my husband, gray-headed, taking to his bed young girls in mockery of marriage. Of course, there could be no joy for him in such an intercourse except for the indulgence of his fanaticism and of something else, perhaps, which I'm hesitant to mention. <laughs> if she thinks there's no joy for him, think yeah. about the girl. Yeah. Oh, my God, right? Oh, oh the poor Saggy balls. Girl. No, thanks. <laughs> So then she she was a strong proponent for the Anti-Polygamy Society, which came about in, in Utah in about 1878. Um, she styled herself, she called herself a Mormon apostate. And all of her surviving children, all the children who grew to adulthood, they all rejected the church as well. She claimed that she had resolved to rear her children, and this is her quote, rear my children so that they should never espouse the Mormon faith while concealing from my neighbors and the church authority that I was thus rearing them. So she was in this Mormon bubble, right? Right. And she felt like she had to keep appearances yeah. of like living by the gospel, but she did well, not and teach at the them. Time you had to worry about like the Danites. Exactly. There, there was a physical yes, yep, harm. That yep. There was a lot of harm. Yeah. yeah. And so she ended up bearing twelve children, all Orsons. They were all Orsons kids, but several of her children were excommunicated. Orson Pratt Jr. refused to serve a mission when Brigham Young asked him to. He also was made a high counselor. And and this is a quote from him. He says, I was made a high high counselor, although I was then an unbeliever, as I am now in regard to my faith. I resolved I would not accept anything that my conscience would not receive. I have come to the conclusion that Joseph Smith was not especially sent by the Lord to establish this work. And I cannot help it, for I could not believe otherwise, even if I knew I was to suffer for it. Also, her son, Arthur Pratt, yeah, um, reported in 1882, he, this is his quote, I am the son of my father's first wife, and I had a mother who taught me the evils of the system. He was excommunicated in October 1874. So I loved that. I thought she was a badass because she spoke out against polygamy. She was not taking any crap from anyone. She was propositioned by Joseph Smith. But he denied it, and he got all these people to get on his side and to sign affidavits mm-hmm. that she that she was lying, or that John Bennett was lying, when in fact it was Joseph Smith the whole time. So that is so cool that there's people that that knew clear back then, you know? Yeah, yeah, right. And they didn't have the research we have, but they yeah. knew in their hearts that they, that it was wrong. Her yeah. son's testimony. Yeah, the was, evils of the system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. So, I mean, they never talk about Sarah no. Pratt. Oh, um, it's the first I've ever heard of her. Yeah. So, yeah, isn't that interesting? So, that's awesome. Yep, loved that one. Well, that's good. Oh, okay. Well, now I, I kind of want to do Nancy because mm. hers is um, kind of like Kind this. of, yeah. So, okay. Around the same so time frame, right? This, this is my idol, Nancy. <laughs> that's Nancy why you're, you go by Nancy here. I seriously right? had her as my screensaver for Aww. months anyway. Love she, her. Yeah. So um, the reason I chose her, she has badass courage. <laughs> so um, she was born 8th of December, 1822 in Pittsburgh. She is okay. the daughter of prominent church leader Sidney Rigdon. So kind of the second in command until yep. they had their falling he out. He was from the very mm-hmm. beginning. Yep. yep. So okay. so on 9th of April, 1842, she was approached by Joseph Smith to become a polygamous wife. And the way Ooh. he did it, it just, it just makes me sick. So mm-hmm. he had her, I'll, I'll actually read it. Okay. It's, it says, this come from George W. Robinson, who was her brother-in-law. He okay. was married to her um, sister. sister. And... On 22nd of July, 1842, Smith sent for Rigdon to come to the house of Mrs. Orson Hyde, and she was living in above the printing press. Oh, yes. Or below the printing press. (laughs) They call it the under rooms. Oh. And so, I don't, anyway, I've not figured that out yet, but. Yeah. Um, he lived, she lived in the under rooms of the printing office. According to Robinson, Nancy inquired of the messenger what was wanting, and the only reply was that Smith wanted to see her. Robinson claimed that Smith took her into a room and locked the door. Okay, right there, I would have been looking for a stove poker or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Anyway. Because you are not refined. I'm not refined. <laughs> and then st- um, stated to her that he had an affection for her for several years. She actually defended him in some kind of a court 
mm-hmm. thing when she was a, just young. Yeah, because little. she was raised to believe mm-hmm. he was the mouthpiece for mm-hmm. God. Yeah. And she's this young girl. Yes. He is yes. the prophet. Uh-huh. So, and so yeah. growing up thinking that he is this godlike person, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And and has that much authority over for her to stand up to him, mm-hmm. she she gets she gets a prize there. So yeah. anyway, she and had wished that she should be his, that the Lord was well pleased with this matter, for he had got a revelation on the subject. Oh God, of course he did. <laughs> God told me that you're supposed to be my plural wife. Yeah. Of course he yes, does. Yes. I call the doctrine of covenants the doctrine of convenience. You oh know what I mean? Because it really you're is. Right. Yeah. It is. Yep. So God had given him all the blessings of Jacob, etc., etc., and that there were no sin whatsoever. Robinson reported that Nancy, Nancy repulsed him and was about to raise the neighbors if he did not unlock the door and let her out. Woo! So at that point... He he sent this um what's her name Miranda Hyde mm. back in to talk to Nancy because he used these older women yes. to try and um encourage she the was a women. recruiter wife yeah she was a recruiter wife yep and Nancy Miranda Hyde and she got paid for it because oh, she God. got this house anyway oh my gosh. And somebody to sleep with mm-hmm. when her husband was on his mission. But anyway, so he sent her back in to try and talk her into it. And then he said he'd send her a letter. And a couple of days later, later he sent her this letter, which is now no, is known as the happiness letter. Mm-hmm. And if you want to hear this letter, mm-hmm. okay, um, what's his name? Jonathan Streeter. Yes. Does a version of this letter that is amazing. So yes. look that up. Because, so good. Look yeah. on YouTube, right? Yeah. yeah. Yep. And it is from um, what Thoughts on Things and Stuff. Is yeah. That what it's called? But anyway. if you just do a search for Jonathan Streeter happiness letter, yeah. you will find it. And it just gives you chills. You can almost mm-hmm. see him uh, sitting there writing it. So yeah. anyway, but in this letter, he's. I'll read part of it. It says, happiness is the object and design of our existence. That which is wrong under one circumstance may be and often is right under another. The um, letter went on to teach that whatever God requires is right, no matter what it is. Although we may not see the reason thereof till long after the events transpire, our Heavenly Father is more liberal in His views and boundless in His mercies and and blessings than we are ready to believe or receive. And also in the letter, He talks about, but He can also be, I'm paraphrasing here, but He can also be, Crueler. I mean, he can be more yes. than, than we give him credit for if we do not. If obey. we do not listen. Yeah. If yeah. We do so not it's, listen. it's a promise and a threat. Yes, it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, at this point, Nancy, she had not revealed this this confrontation with Joseph to her family. But when she received this letter, she took it to her dad. She was she like, enough her, already. Yeah. She let her let him read it. And he demanded an audience with Joseph Smith. Ah. So Joseph Smith comes over to the house. Nancy is in another room, but she can hear what's going on. Mm-hmm. And Joseph denies everything and says, no. that, yeah, oh, he's such a sleaze. Yes. Anyway, he My denies mom. it. There she went, came into the room and said, Joseph, you are telling that which is not true. Ooh. You did not make you did make such a proposition to me, and you know it. And her sister, who was there, said to Nancy, Are you not afraid to call the Lord's anointed a cursed liar? And she says, No, she replied, I am not, for he does lie and he knows it. Ooh. I love her. <laughs> I just love her for wow. that. So anyway, so after this, Joseph's he 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 can't back down. And Does so he admit? Does he, he admits it, but then he said it was a test of her virtue. Oh my God! You know how of he, course he it does was. those Ab- Abraham mm-hmm. tests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says it was a test of her That's virtue. That's convenient. And but Rigdon never really did. Her her dad never did really buy that. As okay, a, as I was that was the next question I was going to say yeah. is did he believe her? Did he stick I, with her story? He did. I think he did believe her. But then there was parts where or a time when. After this, where Joseph really did slander her, or he indirectly uh-huh. slandered her, and and that she was known as the town whore and uh-huh. that kind of thing, and Rigdon was still trying to become get back in favor with Joseph. So at, mm-hmm. at that, I'm like, okay, Rigdon, stand up for your daughter. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's doing this to her. 
yeah, yeah. But, but whatever, you know. And so, and and it must not have damaged her too bad because, like, four years later, she was married. So, mm. and she wasn't an, too old. She was at the age of twenty-four. She married Robert Ellis, and and went on to live. And she stayed life. in the church. Uh uh-uh. uh Oh, she did not stay I in the church. I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. But she they, wasn't excommunicated necessarily. No. But she was punished by being. Gossiped about. Mm-hmm. Like, Joseph yeah. started rumors about her mm-hmm. saying that she's, you know, a whore and getting around. Mm-hmm. Because that's, that discounts her story so that anybody that hears her story says, oh, yeah, sure, you're a liar. You're you're not a virtuous woman, so we're going to believe right. the prophet over you. Right. right. And I don't know whether she actually left the church, mm-hmm. but she moved. I think she was went to Pittsburgh something mm, so she she left the saints she did yeah. not and and so i i don't imagine she i wouldn't yeah, so, yeah. right yeah. i love that she said that yeah me she too. storms into the room and says mm-hmm. you are lying you are lying i know and that takes courage that because some he has so much authority over her mm-hmm. i mean it's like I mean, her dad's position in the church, everything was. Yeah. And plus, they believed he was, I don't know why, but they believed he was a, you know, a yeah. prophet. And yeah. So, anyway. And so. the other thing I wanted to point out about that is the happiness letter became well known, yeah. but taken out of context. Yes. Right. So, yeah. I remember, I mean, there are, you can look it up. You Google happiness uh-huh. letter and you'll find all kinds of. Quotes from general conference from, yeah. from recent prophets. Well, I think as it. recent as um, Thomas S. Monson, I think, mm-hmm. quoted the beginning of the happiness letter where it talks about happiness is the object of our uh-huh. existence. existence. Mm-hmm. They use that very first quote, but they don't tell they, you where that yeah, came from. They don't. Or um, what do the context Maybe is. Maybe they don't even know. Because I know I think that the leaders know. general authorities will use... Past general authorities talk. Talks, that's take, true. Take pieces of them, and so I wonder if it's just they, passed down. Yeah, like maybe. That. But anyway, I remember the, the happiness letter being talked about in Relief Society, and not really. Having, yes, I oh. remember it being brought up and being quoted, but not for what it actually was. Right. There was no mention of all the really manipulative, creepy parts yeah. of that letter. Yeah. And they, I heard. I don't know if you desert. can. If you, I don't know if you can confirm this or not, or because I, I don't know whether it's true, but I heard that often his approach to women when trying to proposition them to be a plural wife, his first question to them would be, do, do you, you believe, believe that I'm, I'm a, a prophet? prophet? Yes, Okay, so you've heard is. the same thing. Yes, and if you look at other so-called religious men who have coerced women, uh-huh. they use the same approach. Tactics. This, the same tactics all are, all the way around, you yeah. know, getting the women alone, getting them away from their families, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing is just, he is. Yeah. Um, getting know. in good with their family members, yes. though, whether yeah. it's a brother or a dad mm-hmm. or something, to try and make, so that they're on his side, so that yeah. they trust him too. Yep. So that when she says, oh, this happened, they're like, oh, but not Joseph. He's. Yeah. He would never do that. He would never do it's that. So, so manipulative. It is. Yeah. And so when, when that's one of the reasons I can't go to church anymore is because mm-hmm. when they glorify him, mm-hmm. it I just want to throw up. Uh-huh. I'm like, you are glorifying a sexual predator. Mm-hmm. Can we stop? Yeah. You know, there, there's a quote by one of them. Maybe it was Monson. Give brother Brig brother Joseph, Joseph, Joseph a break. A break. I'm, I just want to say, give me a break. Yeah, right. You know. <laughs> anyway, it's like you give a break. He doesn't deserve to a break. Who plows his field wrong or is maybe a little harsh with his wife and children. Yeah. But not sexual predators. Yeah. No. Who claim they speak for yes, God? Yes. Who claim they speak for God? Yeah. Nope. I've received I'm a sorry. revelation that yeah. you're supposed to be. Yeah. Oh, it's so, just so bad. But she, I love her. She was just the spunky and yeah. I, I, I loved what she did. Yeah, so. definitely a good mm-hmm. dissident daughter, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes. She's amazing. That's anyway. awesome. Okay. Okay. So the next one, her name is Martha Maria Hughes Cannon. I'm sure that's not her original name. I think. Her name was Martha Maria Hughes. Her married name was Cannon. So we'll get there. She was born in 1857 in Wales. And then they took the trek west. 
Her younger sister died and was buried in an unmarked grave. She was 21 months old. So this was traumatic. Like, I just don't think that we stop and really consider how traumatic it is to lose family members on the trek west Mm -hmm. and have, number one, no time to mourn their loss. Mm -hmm. You just have to keep moving. You bury them in a shallow, unmarked grave, Mm -hmm. and you keep going. Yeah, one of my great-great-whatever-grandpas was buried along the Snake River. Oh, yeah, yeah. sad. That has to be so traumatic. So they arrived in the Salt Lake Valley in 1861. Three days after arriving in, in the Salt Lake Valley, her father died. So at the age of 14, she was she was um, maybe like 12 when they arrived in Salt Lake and her father died. At the age of 14, she started teaching school. So, yeah, right? So then, and she was a very, like, driven, very smart woman. She wanted to be a doctor from a very young age. So first she taught school for a year. Then she decided she wanted to learn typesetting. She, she got a job for the Deseret News. And then the women's exponent. It was there that she met Emmeline Wells and Eliza R. Snow. And they were kind of mentors to her because they were, I mean, badass women in their own rights, right? They were strong, independent women as well, even though they were married to Brigham yeah. Young, who was yeah. an asshole. And- <laughs> but she had, um, so they kind of took her under their wing. She had told them that she wanted to become a doctor. They fully encouraged her at the age of 16. She enrolled at the University of Deseret, which is now the University of Utah, as a pre-med major. Uh, In 1878, she graduated and was one of four women set apart for medical studies and practice by the LDS Church and went to medical school in Michigan. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. My mind's being blown. I know. (laughs) You're like, wait, how did this happen? (laughs) No, I'm just one. I did not know that the University of Utah was church run. Oh, yeah. That was the original. That was Brigham Young's original church. uh, School. Sorry. Brigham Young. How did I not know that? Brigham Young started the University of Utah, but it was University of Deseret. So BYU isn't even Brigham Young School. No, I you did didn't not know that. Know that. Yeah. I thought they were always the. Nope. No, <laughs> the University of Utah was the first college in Utah, and it was started by Brigham Young. It's called De- University of Deseret. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've been in. I've been educated. Yeah. Too. So she the went there as a pre med major, graduated. And then she was set apart for medical studies and practice by the LDS Church. So I don't know because the LDS Church was like so much, not just the church, it was like the whole political system too. It was like they were the government too. Right. And they allowed her to go to Michigan <laughs> to medical school. Allowed so her. <laughs> at the age of 23, she graduated from med school in Michigan. Can you believe this woman? She's amazing. So she continued schooling even after graduating as a doctor she got her phd but she kept going to school and by the time no, is a phd or m Did sorry she md, a, oh, MD. Oh, okay you're right okay yeah you're right no you, you, md I thought, okay you're right so but she continued going to schooling and by the age of 25 she had four bachelor degrees oh that's awesome <laughs> she's awesome so huh. um she had four bachelor's degrees she decided to move back to utah and she opened a private medical practice but, but shortly after, she was asked to become the resident physician for Deseret Hospital, which is LDS Hospital now. Okay. okay. Uh-huh. So that was the first hospital. So at this time, Angus Munn Cannon was the superintendent of the hospital. And he was a polygamist, of course. And <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so that year, the Eds- Edmonds Act. Okay, remember that. Edmonds uh Act was passed by Congress Mm -hmm. making polygamy a felony. Mm -hmm. And anyone who practiced polygamy would be fined $500 and spend five years in prison. This was in 1882. Okay, remember that too. These are important details. But in 1884, she married this guy, Cannon, who was the superintendent of a hospital. She was his fourth wife. So they had to keep it a complete secret. Even her mom didn't know that she married him. Okay, even her own mother could not attend a, you know, a ceremony or anything. Okay, but rumors started flying that Angus was a polygamist and he was taken to court and he was sentenced to jail. So at this time, she finds out she's pregnant and she goes into hiding because Angus, her husband, went to jail. And babies are proof. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. 
<laughs> exactly. Exactly. And a lot of pregnant women had to go into hiding. That is so sad. So she gave birth while he was in jail. And then eventually, like, she was trying to evade warrants and the government. She exiled herself to Europe. And while she was in Europe, Angus married two more women. She was gone with her young daughter in Europe. Him marrying these other women were not, it was not okay with her. I mean, she was the fourth wife already. So it's not like she, but it just upset her. She was very jealous. She really, really struggled. Well, and they were, they usually were struggling financially too. Oh, yeah. And you add more families. Yeah. That makes no sense. Yeah. I, anyway. Exactly. Whatever. Yeah. So she really struggled. But while she was in Europe, then the Edmonds Tucker Act came about. And that was different. It made women in the Utah ter- Territory unable to vote after, like, they had already had the right to vote right. since 1870. Yes. And then it was suddenly taken away. Yes. So women in Utah started to rally and, Martha became the leader of the Utah Women's Suffrage Association. So she came back to Utah. She felt so strongly about this. She started traveling to suffrage conferences with Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Stanton. She gave speeches at the World's Columbian Exposition of 1893. She was one of the featured speakers there um, of the Women's Congress. In her fight for women's suffrage, she felt that education, freedom, and purpose were vitally important for mothers. This is her quote. Somehow I know that women who stay home all the time have the most unpleasant homes. (laughs) There are. You give me a woman who thinks about something besides cook stoves and wash tubs and baby flannels, and I'll show you nine times out of ten a successful mother. Yeah. Yep. I I get that. Isn't that amazing? So in 1896, voting rights were restored to women. So at that time, she ran... As a Democrat for state senator against her Republican husband. I love that. <laughs> you told me that over the phone, and I'm like, yes. <laughs> I wonder how the not only dinner she, conversation was. Like I that. know, right? <laughs> not only did she run against him, but she won. That is awesome. She beat him. So local newspapers really like fed into this story. Oh, like it was a big the ERA deal. Thing yeah, was just starting. Yeah, to they love to play suffrages. Exactly, yeah. and they love to play on the fact that you know this leading Mormon polygamist was defeated by his fourth uh-huh. wife. That's awesome. The Salt Lake Tribune proponent proponent of the Republican view at that time editorialized that Angus Munn Cannon was deserving of readers' votes. So they were trying to get people to vote for him. But the Salt Lake Herald, it was a Democratic newspaper, apparently, said, Miss Maddie Hughes Cannon, his wife, is the better man of the two. Oh, <laughs> that that's awesome. Um, <laughs> so they said, send Mrs. Cannon to the state Senate and let Mr. Cannon, as a Republican, remain at home to manage home industry. Let <laughs> <laughs> him deal with it. baby flannels. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, yeah, so she won him. She beat him in the election in November. She became the first woman elected as a state senator in the United States with 10,288 votes, while her husband only received just over 8,000 votes. So the couple reported that no relationship issues were produced from the election. But who knows? Yeah. Well, and we picture it as, yeah, like conversations over dinner. But we have to remember, he had six other wives besides her. She probably never saw him. She probably never saw him. Yeah. Exactly. Or or any money. Oh, yes. for sure. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> so. Let's see. The next part. So she, while she was in office, she introduced several bills, all of them having to do with women and girls' education and health care. This was like her push, right? She also helped people who, in the deaf, and, deaf, dumb, and blind community. I don't know if that's politically correct anymore, but that's what they called it at the time. Right. Uh-huh. In political conventions, her wit, rapid thinking, and knowledge made her capable of holding her own and of representing her sex most favorably. She gave birth to her third child at the end of her first term, so she did not run again. So she just had a third child. So she must have seen him sometimes. <laughs> must have. <laughs> or somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, when she was done with her political run, um, she served as a member of the Utah Board of Health and the State School Board for the Deaf and Blind. Um, her husband died in 1915, sorry, 1915, and then at that time she moved to Los Angeles to be near her son. Her adult son had moved to Los Angeles. She died in 1932 um, and was brought back to Salt Lake to be buried next to Angus. 
1986, the new Utah Department of Health building was dedicated and named the Martha Hughes Cannon Health Building in Salt Lake City. That's awesome. And a bronze statue of her was moved to the foyer of the Utah State Senate building. But she never ran for office again. Nope. No. Nope. Ah. She just had that short, uh, that's that short one term that's awesome. in office. But, man, she was a badass, uh, in my opinion. Anybody who dares run against her husband for Senate and wins. I love it. Awesome. Is amazing. <laughs> That's so. cool. If you enjoy this content and it's been helpful for you, don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast. Leave us a review if you love us. And finally, if you feel so inclined, I would really appreciate financial support in this work. You can go to dissidentdaughters.org and donate, or you can go to mormondiscussionpodcast.org and choose Dissident Daughters in the drop down menu when you go to set up your donation. You can do a one-time donation or better yet, set up a monthly donation of even five bucks. If you've left the church recently, you've probably experienced a 10% income increase. And here's a place where you can donate and know that you are supporting a fellow dissident daughter who wants to stick around and keep providing a supportive space for deconstructing our faith together. Thanks for all your support.